Hello and welcome to the study of God's Word in the 6th and 7th chapters of Luke's Gospel. Our study and reflection will surely be fruitful, even though some of these passages may sneak by us because we have read and heard them so often. No matter how familiar we are with the Beatitudes, the Golden Rule, and the other scriptures in this lesson, let's be sure we are open to the possibility that God may want to surprise, challenge, or bewilder us through these familiar words. The lesson begins with debates about Jewish Sabbath rules, typical of early debates within the Jewish Christian community. Luke next recounts Jesus' selection of the twelve apostles. With this selection, Jesus announces and symbolizes the beginning of a new Israel. The covenant blessings promised to Abraham were transmitted through the twelve sons of Jacob. Now, in the new covenant, these promises will be fulfilled in Jesus himself and transmitted through the twelve apostles. After defining the new Israel, Jesus then begins to describe the way it will look, the characteristics it will have. Luke has Jesus begin his description with the Beatitudes delivered in the Sermon on the Plain. They were not unique to Jesus. Beatitudes were found in Egyptian, Greek, and Jewish literature. They declare blessedness based on some virtue or good fortune. An understanding of culture is important here. In traditional societies of Jesus' time, people believed deeply in the power of speech. They were convinced that when someone declared a blessing or a curse, the words themselves could accomplish good or ill. If human words had such power, we can only imagine what they believed about the power of God's blessings or curses. Luke's audience believed that God's blessings could be seen in the outward signs of a person's life. People who did not appear wealthy, healthy, and happy were presumed to be not blessed by God, even outside the realm of God's blessings and mercy. Jesus' audience on the plain in Galilee would have had this mindset. But Jesus says to them quite clearly, God does bless the poor, the hungry, and those grieving and rejected. In the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Don't presume anything. God's blessings are not obvious. They may not show up in economic or social status. But one thing is clear. God's blessings are open to everyone. One way to reflect on the Beatitudes would be to consider our own beliefs about blessings. For example, when you thank God for blessings, what comes to mind first? When you consider people very fortunate, what do they possess that makes you think of them in that way? Would your indication of blessed be absence of trouble in life, uh, excellent health, financial wealth? a beautiful family, a dream job? An honest answer to this may show that we still believe a lot like Jesus' audience did. We may need to take a look at our values from Jesus' point of view. But what then? Surely Jesus doesn't want people to be poor, hungry, and sad only to wait for the blessings in the next life. The Beatitudes surely are not like a commandment. Thou shalt be poor and persecuted. Luke's version of the Beatitudes almost demands that we reflect on them in another way. He gives the blessings a corresponding curse or woe. Rearrange the order a little bit. 
place each woe immediately after each blessing, and we see a clear message from Jesus to two very different groups. Blessed are you poor, the reign of God is yours. But woe to you rich, for your consolation is now. Blessed are you who hunger, you shall be filled. Woe to you who are full, you shall go hungry. Blessed are you who are weeping, you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall weep in your grief. Blessed shall you be when men hate you, when they ostracize you and insult you. Woe to you when all speak well of you. When read this way, it doesn't seem at all like Jesus is saying to the unfortunate people of this world, just wait, just wait, your reward is coming. Instead, he seems to be saying, God doesn't like it that people are poor and forgotten. It's up to the rest of you to remedy the situation. And further, if you are a part of the fortunate ones and you don't take responsibility for the rest, God is promising punishment. Luke's beatitude shed new light on God. They tell us what matters to God, who is especially important to God. Is this different from the vision of God we usually carry around with us? What does Jesus' commitment to the poor and oppressed say to us here in the United States where we are blessed with enormous resources and freedom? On his first visit to the U.S. in 1979, Pope John Paul II said to all those cheering Americans gathered in Yankee Stadium, You must never be content to leave the poor just the crumbs from the feast. You must take of your substance, not just of your abundance, in order to help them. And you must treat them like guests at your family table. I remember that speech vividly. In 1986, the U.S. Catholic bishops called Americans to another type of action on behalf of the poor. Their document, called Economic Justice for All, was challenging and controversial. It was based on the premise that public policies are a true measure of a nation's justice or injustice toward the poor and needy. The bishops wrote, We should not be surprised to find Catholic social teaching demanding the gospel is demanding. The document urged American Catholics to practice their concern for the poor in their homes, offices, schools, and businesses. We ask you to become more informed and active citizens, using your voices and votes to speak for the voiceless, to defend the poor and the vulnerable, and to advance the common good. We are called to shape a constituency of conscience, measuring every policy by how it touches the least, the lost, and the left out among us. Twenty years after this document, things are still looking very skewed in this country, with the gap between the rich and the poor growing even wider. In 1979, the wealthiest 1% of the population received 7.5% of the national income. In 2000, that grew to 15.5%. The share of the poorest 40%, in contrast, declined from 19.1% in 1979 to 14.6% in 2000. The poor are still poor and getting poorer. 
The late Mother Teresa noted that although the people she cared for in India were economically impoverished, she found Americans spiritually impoverished. She said that we too often substitute the good life of consumerism for the Christian life of simplicity, sharing, and caring for one another in love. Mother Teresa's statement is such a good reminder that Scripture invites us not just to learn and reflect, but to act in practical ways. Growing up, I saw my parents live out the Beatitudes in practical ways. They regularly reached out to the marginalized long before the word was used. I think what happened is that they were just extra kind to these people. The relationships that followed made it possible for people on the fringes to experience God's blessings. Once, when I was about 12 or so, we were invited and went to breakfast after midnight mass to the home of a man we kids hardly knew. Anyone in our town would have considered him odd. He was probably a little over five feet tall, very chubby, bushy hair, new in our small town, and raising his children alone. The family was poor. The children, our classmates, were mostly ignored. I was aware of all of this, and yet all of a sudden I found myself having breakfast at their house. I never knew how it came about. Very little was said about it, but you can bet I understood the significance of what was happening. When I was about six, my parents offered to share our home for almost a week with a young family of seven. The father had just died and they had had to move out of their house and needed a place to stay until the train came through to take them to Baltimore, where the mother had some family. Now, be sure you have the picture. It was about 1960 when houses were small. Our family of 11 was already crammed into our house, and my mother had invited seven more in. One of my older sisters says she was traumatized by this event. She can't forget the evening she came home late to find that there was no bed space, not even any floor space for her. And, and maybe my mother did go overboard sometimes. But by consistently befriending people that were on the fringes of society, my parents just lived gospel principles. Their actions certainly affected my beliefs and behavior, and I can never know how many others they influenced. After Jesus gives the fundamental principles of the Sermon on the Plain, he begins to model the connection between hearing and doing. In the remainder of chapter 6, Luke includes traditional sayings of Jesus and parables. The sayings emphasize two points, love of enemies, a hard teaching in any culture, and generosity in giving, something we can usually fool ourselves about. As the Beatitudes did, these sayings focus on the Christian ideals of sensitivity to the poor and the sharing of goods. The parables also emphasize two points, the need for personal faith and conviction in helping others and the need to practice what Christ has taught us. In chapter 7, we again encounter familiar scripture stories and we want to try to look at them in a fresh way. The healing of the centurion's servant focuses on the ministry to the Gentiles which Jesus had announced at the beginning of his ministry in chapter 4. 
Although the centurion is a Gentile, he clearly respects the God of the Jews and their laws. The Jewish emissaries present in Luke's version of this gospel story are significant. Father Eugene Laverdier tells us that they represent the presbyters or elders who would eventually lead the Gentile communities. These are the leaders who will present Jesus' mission to the Gentiles. Throughout Luke's gospel, he makes his readers, mostly Gentiles, aware of what is to come later on in Christian life. Perhaps the main focus, though, is on the faith of the centurion. He trusted that Jesus could heal his servant with only a command, say the word and let my servant be healed. Jesus is amazed at such trusting faith. I found it interesting that two different Greek words are used in this story to describe the sick man. One meaning is servant. The other is closer to friend or son. When the centurion is quoted, the meaning of the word used is more like son or someone who is dear to him. This in itself is parabolic since servants at this time in history were not treated with dignity. Next, Luke relates the miracle Jesus performs for a widow. This story appears only in the Gospel of Luke, another sign of Luke's attitude toward people on the margins of society. As he did in the Beatitudes, Luke depicts Jesus as particularly concerned with those who are in some way outside. In the Jewish society of Jesus' day, a woman was subordinate to and completely dependent on her father or her husband. The widow in our story today is even worse off. She has now lost her son, her last means of support. In this story, no one even had to ask him to help. Jesus raised the son to life as soon as he saw the funeral procession, knowing the widow's plight demonstrating again his awareness and that he preaches the good news of salvation to the powerless in society. In both these healing stories, we can relate to our earlier discussion of the power of the spoken word. Jesus' word has the power to bridge the gap between Jewish and Gentile cultures to heal the centurion's slave. In the widow's case, his powerful word goes beyond the physical death. To restore life. Our lesson ends with the story of the sinful woman. This particular story makes us believe that Luke may have been an artist. He describes very vivid scenes, then he adds speeches and conversation that interpret and stir the imagination and make for dramatic reading. Legend has it that Luke was a physician. Maybe he was what we call a Renaissance man, remarkable in a number of talents. In the story, Luke shows Jesus encountering rudeness in a home to which he has been invited. Simon, a Pharisee and the host, mostly ignores Jesus. It falls to a bad woman, as Simon calls her, to offer Jesus the common courtesies generally given when someone is a guest in a home. The scene contrasts two attitudes of mind and heart. Simon had invited Jesus to his home, but we have to wonder why. He clearly felt no love or respect for him and indicated no neediness. The woman, again one of Luke's marginalized, knows nothing but need. She knows Jesus can supply her need for forgiveness, and so she is overcome with love for him and we know which one received forgiveness. 
The woman probably was a prostitute. Given her reputation, she shocked everyone except Jesus when she came into Simon's courtyard. She wounded their sense of what was proper, to say the least. Then Jesus validates her by the clever way he talks to Simon and the others present. This story echoes the things we have said about the Beatitudes. Simon assumes, like most people of his day, that the woman cannot be blessed by God. He assumes that Jesus does not realize who this woman is, and so Jesus cannot be a prophet. Once again, Jesus turns prevailing beliefs upside down. He demonstrates his authority by knowing the hearts of everyone he encounters and by forgiving sins. In Jewish theology, only God could forgive sins. The three stories we looked at last, the centurion's servant, the widow of name, and the sinful woman, have one strong common thread. They are symbols of God's intent to save all humankind, reaching out in love to close gaps and bring people to salvation. As you go through this study, you will see that Luke's gospel has a theme of journey, and he uses different words for journey, including road, course, ascent, or the earliest one used by Christians, the way. The Hebrew word is derek. It can mean mode of action or lifestyle. The Christian's path in Luke's eyes is outward bound, not a static acceptance of teachings, but an energetic following in Jesus' footsteps. The Christian's lifestyle should help open the church's horizons to all peoples. Luke wants his readers, that's us, to be involved in a lifelong journey, a conscious, intentional journey. And in his portrayal of a human, loving Jesus, Luke offers us a very compassionate companion to invite along with us on that journey. 